Hello folks, welcome to Switch It. Don't look now because England's World Cup horror show just keeps getting gorier. From champs to chumps in the space of a few weeks, the defence of their trophy is all but over following five crushing defeats in their opening six matches. There's nowhere to hide on Halloween and potentially more scary stories to come, with Champions Trophy involvement in the balance too. Joss Butler and his as-yet-undead army still have to shuffle through three more games, but the gravestones are already being inscribed. Joining me to cast a ghoulish eye over what's gone on out in India are a couple of grim-faced reapers. ESPN Crick Info UK editor Andrew Miller and associate editor Matt Roller. Hello both. Um, I'll start with you, Miller. Before the tournament, you were pretty confident of England reaching the semis, but, I seem to recall, offered an important caveat, uh, born of years of watching uh, England at World Cups, that they could still bomb. And uh, bomb they surely have. Yeah, I mean, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that they have bombed about as badly as any sporting team has ever bombed from expectations as high as they had before the tournament, and yet they're still not knocked out. And what that goes to show is that this tournament is almost impossible to screw up in terms of getting to the top four. If you are one of the best teams in the world and know you're one of the best teams in the world, this format, all 10 teams playing each other, top four go through, is basically designed to prevent any cock-ups being possible. And yet England have managed it. England are not going to get their three wins out of three and the right results everywhere else to somehow sneak in. Um, They are going home ignominiously early and uh, they're going to be humiliated. They have been humiliated already. Um, There's... You know, I, I gave some mitigation after the Bangla- after the Afghanistan loss because, you know, as we've discussed at nauseam, the way this this um, cycle has been formulated, England have not played enough 50 over cricket, and therefore they haven't got enough practice in. There's no mitigation anymore. They have um, they have all lost form at exactly the same time. Their selection has been flip floppy, ad hoc, and and hopeless. Um, they don't know whether they're going in with Three all-rounders, no all-rounders. Ben Stokes, with is he fit or is he not fit? Um, Joe Root, what on earth's gone wrong there? There are so many questions about so many pillars that England just never even considered. And, you know, as you mentioned there, there's the, there's even the, the question of whether they can qualify for the Champions Trophy now. I mean, obviously, that's a massive oversight on, on, on the part of the ICC. I mean, if England, England had known in advance, they would surely have targeted a top-eight finish. I mean, it's, it goes, goes without showing. <laughs> but... Um, no, I, I, I'm plenty a, left I, to play for. Is there is plenty left said, to play uh, for, but who, who could have imagined that that is all there is left to play for? Well, indeed, um, Matt, you're probably too young to remember, but this is what English One Day cricket was like way back in 2015. Um, what, what, what's the mood been like out there? Uh, well, they say you only play Ahmedabad twice at a World Cup, uh, and the way up was a nine-wicket defeat to New Zealand. So um, I'm not sure what we're going to have in store over the course of the next few days but um yeah i mean th- this this game on on saturday was being framed by some of the papers in the uk as england's chance to knock australia out about 2 3 weeks ago now when australia had just been beaten by south africa and gone i think norton 2 from their first two games um and yeah it, it's um it's pretty extraordinary isn't it that we're in a situation where australia can uh, put the the final nail in England's coffin, which has been ready for them for for weeks, really. Um, yeah, I I think um, we're at the stage of the tournament where people are looking for uh, the the details of exactly what's gone on and looking for the easy solution, which is obviously to blame everyone falling out. But 
Um, it, my impression is that that's not really happened, um, and it's it's something you know it, it's a it's bigger than simply a couple of players not getting on or something like that. I think it's um, you know a, a, a collective failure to um, to respond to any kind of setbacks. I think ever since that Afghanistan game, I think that was the one that really jolted them. To be honest, obviously the you know we can get into the gory detail of exactly what's happened since then, but. It feels like England didn't play the way they wanted to at all in that game. Were completely off it from the start, and ever since then, you know, they had a week in Mumbai where uh, they, they had too, probably too much time, overthought things. Um, you know, pretty much decided what they were doing with the team and the toss the day before the game, and didn't react to what had happened on the on the day. And it's just been a um, a bit of a car crash, really. I think if I was I walked away from the Akana in Lucknow uh, last weekend and thought to myself. You know, in some ways, even though England have been thrashed by a hundred runs, it might have been the second best performance of the tournament. They were right on it from the start and in the field and with the ball. And um, much as their batting left a lot to be desired, India bowled extremely well. And you know, I don't think anyone uh, coming into this tournament thought that England's second best performance out of six games would come in a one hundred run thrashing by what should have been um, a team that they were competing with towards the back end of the tournament. Yes, it's it's. Um... It's been a not-so-little shop of horrors uh, and quite a list of ignominy. Um, England aren't officially out. Let's just just clear this one up for for, um, listeners over the the, the next couple of days. Their their fate (laughs) hangs in the balance. They could still get to eight points. A few teams could still get to eight points. Um, I don't think Lloyd Christmas is uh, even holding out hope for England, but uh, it needs Australia or New Zealand uh, to to keep losing. I mean, England have sort of. Uh, we talked about making World Cups interesting before by uh, increasing the jeopardy. They've they've been so bad they've almost stopped things from being interesting because it's it's now kind of on Afghanistan to to punch their way into uh, top four contention. I think England could be knocked out before the Australia game if New Zealand beat South Africa tomorrow and Afghanistan beat Netherlands on Friday, uh, which would mean that too many teams are guaranteed ten points. Uh, and England can't get to 10 points. Um, but Miller, uh, two parts to this, I suppose. Michael Vaughan, uh, I think, wrote this week that this was England's worst World Cup ever. I mean, it's quite a list. Uh, they have lost five games for the first time at the World Cup, and four in a row, also a first. Um, and also, worst title defences. I mean, you, you've touched upon it. Um, I, I saw some references to France, uh, the 2002 World Cup, the um, bombing out in the group stage, the Football World Cup. Uh, I immediately thought of Middlesex getting relegated in 2017 after <laughs> winning the county championship. But, uh, I mean, this is is off the charts on, in many respects. It is. I mean, Owen Morgan made the point that, that, that this, this is unprecedented. Um, I can't remember his exact quote, but, you know, he's 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 been... <clears throat> He's been quite strident in the last couple of days. Not, mm. not you know, not not too, not too pointed. He's not pointed the finger at any of his old old teammates, but he's he's been he doubled down on on his criticism of the team after after the India loss. And uh, yeah, I I think I agree with him. I don't think there is a anything to rival this in in certainly in international sport. Um, and it's the it's the it's the length and depth of the humiliation as well. You know, you know, when you think of other failures in World Cups, you think of India, say, who weren't defending champions, but they had been finalists in two thousand three, getting knocked out in two thousand seven, and obviously that knockout is essentially the the reason we've had this this um, setup now, where it's almost impossible to get knocked out early. But that was that was three games; and they were gone. You know, they lose lose two out of three, and, and off they go. But this time around, it's um, 
basically England are being, you know, dragged pillar to post like, you know, like some sort of goat thief in the 1900s and, you know, dragged behind a horse and then shipped off to the colonies. It's it, it, it's it's absolutely brutal. They, they've got three more weeks of this. Put it's in the Chris Stocks. <laughs> oh, yeah, Chris Stocks, he's, he's, he's absolute player, the player of the series at the moment. If you haven't read his, his columns in the eye, they are eye-catching. Um <laughs> I don't. I. I. I don't know. I. I don't think there's there is anything to rival it. Um, but it, it's le- it's less about whether whether it's it's the worst. It's just what. How on earth do you begin to unfankle it? And you know, I. I personally, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You you go back to the what Joss Butler said at the start of that tournament. Mm. It, 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 it will be the epitaph. It will be the epitaph of, the, of this World Cup. We're not here to defend anything. <laughs> We're here to attack the World Cup. And oh my God. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, as, as obviously the book has now been written on Basball and, uh, you know, the origin story of Basball is well known. And, and we well know that the England team, the test team, did not like the word Basball because they... they they thought it diminished what what the scope of the of of Basball was, uh, that you know there are times when you can defend and times when you can attack. It's about choosing your moment. Josh Butler's quote right at the start of that World Cup, basically, it, it was it was absolute car crash of a statement to make. I mean, how do you just lay out your World Cup manifesto? Is we're just going to attack everything, attack everything. We're going to go mental. We're going to tee off from the from the word go we have no no game plan except attack was essentially what he said in that in that press conference and you know you could obviously statements like that get get read in read into the more gets read into them the more more time goes by but it was just a dumb thing to say are you seriously saying you're going to be attacking harder than say Heinrich Klassen who's just scored 174 from 63 balls in a in a yeah. T20 are you sure you're going to be attacking the power play when Jasprit Bumrah is unhittable in those first 10 overs are, are you sure there's not going to be a moment that it might just make sense to just sit in a little bit like Jonathan Trott and his 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 his, his Afghanistan team you know they 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 came into the tournament as you know hot-headed Afghans who are going to run down from the hills and smash everything out of sight not a bit of it they they've pulled off two of the coolest run chases in this tournament just by thinking you know what we're going to play the ball on merit and we're going to have what eight eight nine nine wicket wins seven wicket wins uh, and kill things slowly because we don't need to rush it. I mean, they're, they're, everyone's been mocking Jonathan Trott's uh, whiteboard in his dressing room, which which was basically a, mm. a ten ten over breakdowns of you know if you're chasing two four two and you need to get divided by five divided by five across you know it's 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 a no brainer. You don't need to be belting it you know out of the park. I mean you know there there've been two classic examples of that for me. Um, ben Stokes. Which I'm sure we'll get into his his ten ball horror story mm. against Mohammed Shami was Stokes trying to be the Messiah and and it didn't come off which you know that can happen, but for me I think probably the worst innings I've seen in this tournament there have been several was Johnny Bairstow's in the run chase against South Africa when suddenly South Africa put two three hundred ninety nine on the board and Bairstow is trying to slog everything over the short boundary at square leg and he connects once that's fine keeps going for it keeps going for it holds out it's like. I mean, it did not need to be that way. If you look at the way that South Africa themselves had compiled that innings, I mean, they they had a really slow power play. They didn't they didn't get going at all. There was there was there was never a need for England to be gung ho in in their in their strategy in this tournament. And by being gung ho, they've not had a plan B. And without a plan B, they they they've they've been found out time and time and time again. 
uh, by being too too full of bravado. Lacking the nuances of baseball, uh, you might say. <laughs> uh, the irony being, Matt, I, I think uh, I'm right in saying from, from one of the graphics uh, drawn up for the site the other day that England had the second lowest attacking shot percentage of any of the teams in the tournament. And certainly um, they haven't been uh, or don't appear to have been mixing it in the way that they so famously like to. Yeah, I, I would push back a little bit against Miller's characterization of, of the batting and the tournament as a whole. I think particularly um, looking back to the Afghan game, I think that was probably the... Um, that, it, that was a game that almost demanded some kind of response where England if, went, if anything, too far the other way because so many of the dismissals against Afghanistan sort of kept, almost were born out of too much respect and not enough self-confidence, I thought, in that... Um, you know, the England team of 2019, Rashid Khan was still considered one of the, the world's leading leg spinners at that point, um, even, even though that was four years ago. He's obviously right up there now. Um, and England, you know, treated him with absolute disdain and, and famously smashed him for, I, I think, how many sixes did Owen Morgan hit in that inning? 17. This time it felt like they almost went too far the other way and, and were so full of respect for Afghanistan's bowlers that they, you know... It, were tentative, weren't the version of themselves that um, smashed the ball to all parts and, you know, aim for the lights, as, as Owen Morgan used to say. So um, I feel as though the word that I keep coming back to with regards to their batting is just tempo. Um, a lot of batters are sort of talking about confidence and, and not having the confidence of their convictions that they used to. And I think a lot of that does come from the relative dearth of ODI cricket that they've played. They, you know, they, they used to be this idea in the England team of deep confidence, which they would, which people have spoken about with, with, uh, with regards to the 2019 World Cup. So that when there was a setback, England were always confident in their ability to respond to it because of the fact that they played in every situation over those four years where they played 85 innings each. And, um, you know, there was nothing that they hadn't seen before this time. It feels like, a setback is enough to throw them off course completely. Um, and I think that's, that's epitomized for me by, by Joe Root, who started the tournament pretty well, had a couple of scores, um, you know, it sort of anchored that innings in defeat against New Zealand and then played well, obviously with a platform set, but knocked it around nicely against uh, Bangladesh up in Darren Sala. But since then has hardly scored a run. He's, I think he's got 11, three, two and naught in his last four innings. And, for someone who who is renowned as being such a great starter of an innings, it's been really almost, you know, I think the, you know, almost unsettling to see him starting so frenetically, particularly that game against Sri Lanka, where, you know, steered it straight to Matthews at backward point on the second bounce and randomly started running because he was so desperate to get off strike and uh, get Bairstow back on strike. So, yeah, I think that that's the word that I keep coming back to is tempo because of the fact that I, I don't feel as though... England have been ultra attacking all the time. It feels like they've, you know, occasionally been playing within themselves and then sort of heat pressure on themselves to the extent that some of the dismissals are pretty ugly. And as Miller says, I suppose Stokes's innings was a good example of that, where he was, you know, tentative against Shami and uh, the pressure built up in a way that it hadn't on him for a while, probably in, in, in a white ball game. And he felt that the only response he had left was to try and hit him off his length. And um, the ball was way too good for him. Yeah, there have been a, a, a number of unsettling episodes. Root, uh, perhaps, uh, Matt, you're referring to there as a kind of uh, the bellwether, you know, the te the technical, um, technically England's best batsman has been <laughs> dismissed in the power play now. Uh, well, too many times to 
count almost, but uh, I think 11 times out of 18 since the last World Cup, since 2020, um, four times out of five uh, in this World Cup didn't bat in the power play against Bangladesh. Um, so, yeah, clearly that um, sends, uh, sends shockwaves through the, the system. Um, when we last spoke, England had started on the wrong foot uh, a couple of weeks ago, losing uh, to New Zealand and Afghanistan on either side of beating uh, Bangladesh. Uh, they've since been completely hobbled, uh, thrashed by a record margin uh, of 229 runs by South Africa, rolled over by eight wickets against Sri Lanka, uh, and then finally having their tummies tickled to the tune of 100 runs by India. I mean, um, there's a lot to pick through there, Miller. Uh, Matt sort of referenced the Afghanistan game as, as, as where it, the tournament started to unravel, certainly putting South Africa into bat in the Mumbai heat uh, and then watching them pile up nearly 400 was a significant moment as well it was i mean it, it made it made no sense even watching from this far away um for him to go that route not not least because when they were in jeopardy in 2019 uh you know back then they of course were a very good chasing team and so they backed themselves to chase any score down but when they were really put up against it when when push came to shove and that that epic match at edge wrestling it's india they thought, no, nope, the way to do this is to bat first. Bat first, lay a smack down, put as many runs on the board and put scoreboard pressure on our opponents to make them crumble. And especially as we, we, we've seen that, you know, Temba Bavuma admitting the other day that uh, they don't have a blueprint for chasing um, when, when obviously they, they creep over the line by one, one wicket having already lost to the Netherlands while chasing. I mean, you know, the, the various strands of idiocy that went into that decision uh, beg a belief, not least the fact that, you know, Joe Root is saying afterwards that, you know, it felt like we were eating the air. It was so hot. I mean, you, you could tell, surely. I mean, Matt was there. Surely you can tell when Mumbai is going to get a little bit smoggy, a little bit hot. It's going to be uncomfortable to be fielding for four hours in the heat. And uh, Matt's, uh, Matt Mott, rather, Matthew Mott, suggested it sort of took, taken them by surprise. Um, but I, I think that's pretty the standard I mean, weather forecast. I don't think it's taken them by surprise. <laughs> this is part of the problem. The fact, the fact they aren't very good has taken them by surprise. Uh, I mean... You know, it, it's easy to it's easy to get um, uh, wise off the event, but I mean, you know, trying to trying to dissect why this has gone wrong. I mean, we've mentioned Basball already, and I, I I think you know it's worth looking at what England achieved in Basball to understand what's unraveling here, because you know, uh, as a, as I say, we we have been analysing England's extraordinary success in Test cricket for a long time now. But I think we've been pretty consistent on this pod where the word was born and all the rest of it. We've been consistent from the outset that when it's when it unravels, it's going to unravel bloody quickly. <laughs> this is unsustainable what England are achieving here. <clears throat> and it's going to catch up on them and it's going to be a bin fire. I'm pretty sure that's the word I used previously. <laughs> I don't think any of us assumed that that bin fire would come in white ball cricket. But, you know, if you stop and think about it, it actually makes perfect sense because... The one thing that we knew about the baseball mentality was that it was a sealed off, closed shop. You're, you're closing yourself off to all circumstances. You're not listening to the media. You're not listening to say, people saying so-and-so, you know, Zach Crawley shouldn't be opening the batting. You're saying, we have absolute faith in the men in this team, in this dressing room. Go, guys, you do your thing. And now suddenly they've opened that can of worms up, essentially, with this, with this tournament because a lot of these guys have been in the baseball vibe. I mean, Matthew Mott, there he is describing Ben Stokes as the spiritual leader. I mean, you know, what's the actual leader got to say about that? And Joe, Josh Butler's not a baseballer. He's not been involved in that dressing room. 
But in comes Ben Stokes, who hasn't done any prep for this tournament whatsoever for various reasons. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's had his hip injury and all the rest of it, but comes in after two games, um, you know, and he's come in as well with a, with a, with a absolute authority that, you know, less is more. Let's not practice. Let's not go nuts. Let's not train endlessly. Let's play lots of golf. I mean, that's been a sub subset of the, of the criticism. I mean, I, mean, I believe, uh, I believe, you know, Dawa Milan was speaking to the media today, but he was late because he was playing golf. You know, that suddenly becomes... They've got to play a lot more golf if they're going to get anywhere in this tournament. The point is that becomes, that becomes a, you know, everything that went well when Basball was going well, all of the things that you thought, well, that's a bit weird, but it's working because they've got the mindset to do this. Suddenly... It's a change scenario with different players coming in. Some guys who are wedded to the Basel mentality. Some guys, you know, Dan Milan's probably a good example of a guy who has, who has grinded and grafted his way against all expectation and against a lot of uh, people thinking he shouldn't be there. He's proven himself to be there on merit. I mean, what's, I mean, what's he got to think about this? What's, what's, I don't know, Gus Atkinson got to think about, you know, this is what it's like to play for England and uh, they're not picking me because, you know, they're trusting guys who've been here before, even though I'm bowling better than them. I'm all a bit weird. David Willey, who, you know, midway through a tournament suddenly gets told, sorry, mate, you're not getting a central contract because we don't think we rate you, but uh, you're actually our best bowler. This is, this is awkward. Harry Brook, I mean, he's obviously a guy who's been front and centre of England's test plans in recent times since Bairstow's injury, but, you know, he, he, Again, forces his way into the into the squad at the last minute, which you know is exactly the sort of thing that Basball did not do. You did not drop Jason Roy, the guy who'd been your rock of your your team on the eve of the Ashes. You would not do that to Zach Crawley. The fact they've done it to Jason Roy, we all thought made sense at the time, but perhaps it doesn't make sense to have binned off a guy who had actually played more white ball cricket than anyone else <laughs> in the fifty over format since twenty nineteen. Um, so all of these little one percenters that that look like a good idea when everything was going well in the test team, you break it out open and it's all splinters flying everywhere. It, it just feels as though there's an awful lot that um, that is going wrong, and it's not simply it's not simply the on-field aspect. It's the mindset has been absolutely fractured because I don't think anyone in that dressing room really <clears throat> believes that they're all singing from the hymn sheet. They're clearly quite self-evidently and not all singing from the same hymn sheet and uh, the hymn sheet is now being stomped into the red dust of uh, of Ahmedabad and Mumbai and wherever else they can, they're getting beaten at the moment. Uh, yes, dragged around behind them uh, as you um, mentioned in the style of medieval torture. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, Matt, uh, the, the, inevitably, you know, the, the talk moves swiftly on from, you know, how bad England have been as to to uh, who's to blame for it and, and then whose head gets chopped off for it. And um, I mean, cl clearly um, there's pressure increasing on Matthew Mott with each, each uh, successive defeat. Owen Morgan has had his say in the media. Um, the players have, have kind of responded um, as well. I mean, clearly there's sort of two elements there for, for um, Mott as the coach to unravel. You've had you know, so many established big name World Cup winning uh, players losing form drastically at the same time. Uh, Root actually has done the best of, of the lot, really. Uh, uh, well, David Malan aside, but um, he's got 175 runs at 29. Then at Bairstow, 141 at 23. Butler, 105 runs at 17. And Stokes has only played three games, but 48 runs at, at 16. Um, 
so not much you'd say he can do about that, Matthew Mott, but the, the other side of it, the selection, the switching suddenly from uh, batting all round a heavy side, you know, batting deep uh, to to going with specialist bowlers against uh, South Africa, I think it was, and then Harry Brook playing, and then going back almost immediately, uh, changing the strategy for Sri Lanka. Um, and also, I mean, the the, the call to uh, bowl first in Mumbai when, you know, that's something you can predetermine and talk about with the captain beforehand. I mean, wh- where do you sit on, on, on how much uh, Mott is to blame for this and how much he... he could have done and and where it leaves his position um you know there's another there's another world cup title to defend in say eight months time for instance yeah well i suppose i suppose that's the you know the thing that we have to start with is um you know as more himself said the other day um you know much as england haven't haven't yet finished 10th he said i've been in the job 18 months i've won world one world cup and uh, lost another so it's it, it sort of you know what's Mott's position has always been framed around the idea that he would be judged on outcomes at World Cups. Uh, bilateral series wouldn't be the be-all and end-all. Um, and I think that's entirely right and in keeping with uh, the way that England's rival teams will go over the next little while. Um, that said, clearly there have been some issues in this tournament. Um, it's much as I personally don't feel as though he's lost the dressing room from everything I've heard on the grounds. Um, there, there, there can be these strange sort of butterfly effects with, um, you know, once one person starts writing it, people start denying it, people start weighing up, actually, what do I make of the coach after all in a way that they maybe otherwise wouldn't? And, uh, you know, we've often seen England coaches lose their jobs at the end of uh, debacles, often in the ashes, but, um, you know, T20 World Cups as well in the case of Ashley Giles. And, um, yeah, it, it, I, I think, to be honest, my, my instinct has been that... Um, both Mott and Butler will be uh, safe for the foreseeable future um, up till that T20 World Cup because of the fact that they've, you know, they've won one, lost one effectively um, so far at World Cups. Clearly, this one has been, uh, you know, way, way, way further from expectations than the T20 World Cup, where England probably went in as second or third favourites last year. Um, whereas they, again, were in a similar position this year and have um, fallen miles short. I think just with the turnaround um, time until the Caribbean tour, which is in December, I think they leave maybe two weeks after their last group game in India is the departure date for that Caribbean tour. I feel as though there's no sort of super obvious candidate to me. People have, you know, the Telegraph have mentioned Morgan as a possible contender, but I feel like that would probably be too soon. And he has um, some total of zero coaching experience so far. Um, but I don't see the obvious contender who would step in and change things around. So I think Mott will be safe. Um, what happens after the T20 World Cup and the Caribbean is a very different question, particularly uh, depending on the outcome of you know England's next three games and whether they get to the 2025 Champions Trophy. Because there's a situation in which after that T20 World Cup, if England aren't in the next Champions Trophy, they then play some white ball games at the end of the summer in 2024 and then have a bit of a, a quiet patch and you know can properly restart the whole ODI cycle can bring in a load of fresh blood particularly if they've not if the T20 World Cup's not gone well there'll probably be a huge sort of reboot of the whole white ball side um so I, I you know I obviously more to some extent you know results over the next two weeks will probably determine his future because if if they lose all three and don't make the Champions Trophy that will be a, an utter humiliation for England but my 
belief is that they'll probably win minimum one out of three games. Um, they'll probably sneak into the top eight and therefore the Champions Trophy. And I think he'll get another nine months minimum is my impression anyway. Um, Miller, on the on the the rebuild, talking about the sort of mentality and 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 uh, um, how England created that, uh, how the the test team created the momentum they had, and and then it it's with the white ball team, it's all coming <laughs> crumbling, uh, tumbling down quite spectacularly. The, the, the rebuild is 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 going to be the the thing, I suppose, and uh, and and in an ODI sense, we're already looking at twenty twenty seven now. Um, Butler would be um, whether he's around then or not. He's he's obviously going to captain for that, as Matt says, for that T Twenty World Cup defence. England play three ODIs in the Caribbean in um, December. That might well be a sort of uh, shadow squad arrangement. They don't then play ODI cricket until September, uh, the end of next summer, when Australia are over. Um, I mean. <laughs> Do you see uh, who, who are the players that England should be focusing on from this point on? Was uh, do you see the Zach Crawley era emerging, for instance, as, as uh, the captain, as far as the captaincy goes? And and in these next few games, you know, is it about getting? There aren't many young players in this squad. The, the entire eleven's over thirty in, in the last couple of games. But there, Harry Brook, for instance, a player that you might build around for the next. Uh, World Cup cycle. Gus Atkinson has only played about five list day games, so presumably can do with all the experience he can get. Um, yeah, wh- where do you see uh, England going there? And is it the end of the road for the likes of Root, Stokes, um, maybe even Butler, well, Chris Wokes, Adil Rashid? Uh, you yeah. know, do they all go after this point? Well, I mean, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? But answer your first question, Harry Brook. Harry Brook, Harry Brook, and more Harry Brook. Mm-hmm. That's basically what England have got to build around. I mean, they, they've gone and given him a three-year contract as well, which is <laughs> which is kind of... And then the moment they've pick, given him a contract, they've stopped picking him in the team, which is extraordinary as well. Um, but no, the fact that he has got the contract is probably the only really good news that's come out of that contract situation because it's come at a really bad time, let's face it. You know, just at the moment when, when it looks like, uh, yeah, as you say, all those names and more... You think on this evidence you wouldn't pick him again? Frankly, I mean, genuinely, you just you know, why why would why would Joe Root walk into another fifty over, over team on the he evidence said, he's produced in this tournament? Said he was keen to go to the next World Cup. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, of course, Joe Root is a world class player, but I mean, this has <clears> been an absolute binfire, and and Stokes's Stokes's knee or hip or whatever else it is that's gone wrong with him is you know he's already retired once from this format. Um, he's only given himself a one year contract for. Various weird reasons he thinks he'll be more valuable next year, which I wonder if that's a <laughs> that feels like it might might have been might have been a bit of a hedge too far, but um, we'll, we'll 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 cross that bridge when Basball returns. Um, but no, fundamentally, England have got a real odd balancing act to strike here because, as you say, they've got they they want to build around young players. They need to build around young players. Rayan Ahmed, he's got a two year contract. He's a guy who clearly is being groomed to be the next Adil Rashid. Although Rashid, funnily enough, has been one of England's few good players in this tournament. So he's probably inked in to, to be the, the to defend his 20 over title in, uh, in, in the USA next year. Um, but it's really difficult. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of um, disingenuous is probably the wrong word, but you know, not that, not that you, I happen to think that Nasser Hussain is usually spot on in pretty much everything he says in his sky punditry, but I, he made one point the other day, which I dis, did disagree with, which said that 
there's absolutely no way you can blame England's domestic structure for this debacle. You can't blame the fact that 100 has come along to 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 blame for the fact that England are, are, are bombing in this World Cup. I I kind of disagree with that. I'm not saying I'm not actually hitting down on 100 so much here as the fact that the lack of a visible 50 over tournament means that we have not had a chance to stress test the next generation uh, who could in, in in this past four years would and probably should to judge by the strength of that white ball bubbling under setup any one of those guys who or you know Ben's babes from 2021 or the guys who played against Ireland recently all of those players gagging for an opportunity hungry to prove themselves and clearly the, the depth and you know you see it from the number of England players who get picked up in franchise tournaments all over the world there is so much talent in English white ball cricket that it makes no sense that you get to a World Cup four years on from England's greatest glory and Harry Brook, come back to him again, has not played a single domestic white ball game, single domestic 50 over game since May 2019. It's absolutely preposterous that England have devalued their competition to such an extent that, you know, it, it doesn't matter. If that does not, you know, Hussein was right to say that, uh, you know, other countries have the similar problem. You know, Quentin de Kock, I can't, remember, I can't imagine when he last played domestic 50 over cricket in South Africa, for instance. <clears throat> but if you don't value that next level tournament, you're not going to know when guys are knocking on the door because they won't get the chance to knock on the door until you get to a World Cup like this and you realise that every player you picked is out of form and, as 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 Morgan said, too old. You know, he said, you know, come come the next tournament in 2027, these guys are going to be too old. This is their last chance and they've blown it. So, um that's the frustration. There is, you know, Harry Brook is clearly only here by accident, frankly. I mean, if, if, if it hadn't been for Johnny Bairstow's injury last year, extraordinarily, if Bairstow hadn't, hadn't, hadn't wrecked his leg playing, playing golf, uh, Brook would not have got his chance to get a regular berth in the test team. He would not have set the world alight in so doing. He would not have created the the wave of momentum has got him into this test, into this one-day squad because he was not in the World Cup squad initially. Let's not forget. And even Harry Brook would be waiting in the wings and possibly sort of twiddling his thumbs, thinking, "Well, is, is I'm ever going to get the call here? Maybe I'll just go off and be a be a be a freelancer all around the world." You know, he's the one guy who's benefited from all of this. You know, you look at. I know. I, I can only go by guys I've seen. You know, Ben Duckett is obviously he's not he's not not a young gun, but he's gagging for an opportunity. Uh, you've got Phil Salt, who's had a few opportunities but hasn't 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 taken them. But again, he doesn't get much of a look in. I know Tom Banton. You've got Will Smead. All all these guys who who have been there or thereabouts. They're just drifting away, aren't they? they, they there's there's been there's been no chance to get a real sense of are these guys the coming goods are they just mm -hmm. flashes in the pan what are they other than not the guys who are going to go to a world cup because they're not in the england setup they're not given the central contract they're not given a chance essentially that is the frustration with all of this you kind of learn in hindsight that oh yeah mm. uh, given given this four years again we might well have had a different team if we'd if we'd ever cross-pollinated uh the the superstars who won that world cup with the, the young guns who are hungry to get a chance yeah, I mean, on that, Matt, is is it being wise after the event to say that you know a Will Jacks or a, uh, a Ben Duckett or a Rayan Ahmed might have brought something to this campaign? I don't think at the time that squad selection was made, I don't think many of us uh, were, were pointing out the howlers um, and, and, you know, England's kind of mantra that these guys have done it before and they can do it again 
was 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 pretty widely accepted. Um, but uh, I mean, th- those names that we've just touched on those, those are clearly going to be the coming guys um, for for the next cycle. Yeah, to be honest, I think it is it is hindsight. I think I, I don't know exactly what someone would have had to do in a in a domestic 50 over competition or in a you know run of games in ODIs if someone didn't get that to to have forced their way into this squad I mean there's a handful of you know there's I think well, it's about an eight seven split or something like that in this squad of players who were and weren't involved in the last World Cup um I I I don't think think there was a situation where any of uh Bairstow, Stokes, Root, Butler weren't going to go to this World Cup given the age profile that they are, they should still be, you know, pretty much in the prime of their careers in their early thirties and all of them have massively underperformed. So I don't think that there was a silver bullet of selection of, you know, if, if only Ben Duckett had been here instead of Ben Stokes, or if only, you know, Jason Roy had clung onto his place instead of David Milan or something like that. I, I, I don't think it's as, as simple as a selection thing of the squad. I, I, I think, you know, clearly, with hindsight, maybe England should have tried to inject a bit more into it. But I think one of the themes that's emerged for me is that there are very few players in the squad and I don't really see how England would have avoided this situation other than, you know, saying to someone like Root, uh, they're probably their greatest ever ODI number three. Sorry, we're not going to select you in this format, which would have created, you know, bigger problems than uh, than it solved. Unless they'd done something like that, I don't see how they would have come out of this with a, 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 mar- a markedly different squad um, but there is, there, there's clearly a theme of there being a lot of players for whom this isn't the pinnacle of their careers. And I don't think many players in this squad, with the possible exception of maybe Milan, possibly Willie, probably Atkinson. Um, but there's not many players in this squad for whom this is the, the pinnacle of their career so far. I don't think there's... For all the guys that have won a World Cup on home soil, that's that was something that they've worked towards and targeted for four years. This feels a bit like it's been bolted onto. Um, to the end of a, an Ashes summer for the guys that were involved in that. If it's obviously the, the third World Cup in as many years for the white ball guys after two T20s. The T20 World Cup has probably grown in importance, slightly damaged the relative standing of the ODI World Cup in terms of I think it's still clearly the uh, considered the more important of the two, but I think that's a lot less clear than it was um, five or ten years ago. And, and I look through this this side and I think a lot of them, you know, all the sort of intangible stuff about hunger and desire and a lot of them are coming back to India and have been here a lot and are rocking up to grounds that they've been to before when it's been a full house because India are playing or because an IPL franchise is playing and they're coming to a ground and trying to get themselves in the mindset of this really matters, this is so important, this is a game which we're going to win to get back on track and you know, it's it's half one and they're warming up and it's about five to five to ten percent full. Um, I didn't think it was a coincidence that the game in Lucknow, which was sold out and was a, a you know near enough full at two p.m., was was when they were most on it in the field and with the ball. They sort of looked up for it and uh, seemed to respond to what was quite a, a hostile and partisan crowd against them. Um, so I, I I do think all of those sort of intangible things of uh, you know it's. It's a lot easier to get up for winning England's first ever 50 over World Cup at the end of a four-year journey than it is for, by the way, guys, we've already done the double in terms of a, a 50 over and a T20 World Cup. Should we just try and get one more? It'll, you know, it just doesn't feel like there's ever been a narrative around it being the thing that England needed to clinch their legacy or anything like that. It just feels like it's been a bit of a, an afterthought and yeah, let's try and do well. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I completely take your point that. there. I completely take your point. I, the one thing I one thing I say is that uh, it it just doesn't make doesn't make sense if England are going to avoid making the same mistakes again. That they've got to learn what what this means to central contracts. I think the, the, the difficulty they've yeah. got now is they've they have basically put every all their eggs into one basket because they need to protect their star players, need to protect their iconic players, need to make sure that they are England assets going going forward. But everything you just said there, it goes it doesn't lend itself to that hunger, doesn't lend itself to the the desire to prove yourself as the very best. If you know, if you are an England contracted player on a three year deal, say, and it's it's you know, you're the ECB are going to want to get bang for their buck. You're going to be pretty much nailed on for every major squad for the foreseeable. It's, you know, I wonder if England need to, you know, they've tried to try to re redo their central contract system this time around to, to stave off the threat of the the franchise market, etc. I just wonder if they need to have more, you know, it's shooting the breeze because obviously they've changed it for this time and it's, it's too late to change it back again. But in terms of the dynamics of the world game, do England just need to have more faith that come the big tournament, the best players in the world will want to play international cricket to get there, to secure their legacy? And, you know, maybe it's got to be, you've got to put your money into performance appearances, you know, make make each mm. match worth more to make it worth your while being selected in, in per game rather than everything going into a contract that is in danger already if you look at the names who've got the big deals of this tournament or for this cycle it already looks like we're going to have a pretty stagnant um setup if if we're really are leaning on on guys who've performed this badly going into you know 2020 mm. 2025 20, 26 27 it's it's uh it's not a it's not an ideal balance of priorities for for england and and it's one that you know they are they are in the it's it's completely entering into the unknown because as we all know the way in which the game is fragmenting and the number of franchise tournaments cropping up means that absolutely nobody knows how to protect their assets, protect their their best players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, to judge by the early evidence, uh, might not be the answer that England thought it was going to be. Mm, yes, and I suppose as well that that you know New Zealand, for example, would be a good example of a team that um, have have succeeded in that. Uh, Trent Bolt has. Mm. Been, was effectively retired from ODIs for a year, came out of retirement, of semi-retirement or effective retirement uh, in that series against England, age 34, and has been been bowling pretty well at this World Cup. And, um, you know, I suppose it, it shows that, um, you know, England's route with Stokes, which has obviously aged terribly, or Stokes' route with himself, it, it, it could work, could have worked as well if, uh, if, if the scenario had been different, if circumstances had been different, maybe if he just found form, maybe if he hadn't had that hip injury. Um, but yeah, I, I do entirely take the point about um, it looking now like a, a, a side that's going to be, you know, if England finish eighth or ninth or tenth in this World Cup, there's going to be a demand for a reset, which is harder to achieve when you've just offered long deals to a lot of players who are already involved in it. So I think the central contracts thing is is tricky and the timing of it obviously hasn't been been great. I think it's as much as anything, it's one of those where um 
but it, it was about it was a question of announcing i think as far as i gather the majority of the contract stuff was done long before the players got on the plane so willie for example knew in mid september that he wasn't getting offered a contract admittedly during a, a warm up series against new zealand so that in itself not fantastic timing but the announcement i think is a little bit of a red herring because as as far as i understand it all the deals were the, the sort of final, final hard deadline was before that game against Bangladesh and Darum Sala, and it didn't didn't look like players were demotivated as a result of central contract decisions during that game. Um, so yeah, I I I, I'm, I take the broader point. I think the um, but some of the some of the commentary elsewhere in the past couple of days about the central contracts being the big issue for England at this World Cup, I think, is a little bit wider the mark. Well, uh, I'm sure as uh, as Miller would tell us at length if we had time, it, it all started to go wrong for England when they uh, didn't properly replace Liam Plunkett uh, <laughs> after the uh, final in 2019. Um, quickly on the on the Tramp Champions Trophy story, Matt, um, uh, explain how this came about because I think you effectively broke it two years after the decision was made. Yeah, always first with the big scoops. Um, no, it was a, it was a very strange one. Um, Shakib sort of referenced it in a couple of press conferences as saying we want to finish in the top eight, and that prompted a few people to ask a few questions. Um, it sounded like basically what happened was after Shakib spoke uh, following Bangladesh's defeat to the Netherlands, which was on Saturday night, there was a bit of an internal debate at the ICC about, uh, you know, should we put out some, I think someone actually asked, should we put out some kind of rebuttal of this and just clarify what's going on? And then someone said, no, no, no we actually did sign off on it. We just didn't tell anyone. <laughs> so then there was a sort of a, a, an informal briefing on Sunday before the, the game in Lucknow where it was mentioned, oh, you guys know what England are playing for, right? And everyone sort of went, uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> and it turned out it was you know, going to be the top seven finishers plus Pakistan, so maybe the top eight uh, in this tournament who, who qualify. And obviously, uh, it, I think the ECB would have been aware at the time, um, but that would have been Tom Harrison and Ian Watmore. Um, and possibly, you know, who knows, maybe Chris Silverwood and Ashley Giles and Owen Morgan and Joe Root as captain. But clearly it, it was complete, completely blindsided the current setup who all found out at various points during that India game. Um, and I think that situation was was the same across other teams. I spoke to uh, an official at the KNCB this morning, the Netherlands board, who had no mm. idea about it until Sunday and ordered any of the team. I think that, that was true of a few different teams. Um, it's kind of, you know, it feels like a, a typical thing that only cricket puts up with where, um, you know, the rules change all the time, aren't available publicly. And um, it, it's just something that is expected of this this sport for some reason. Um, but Paris have thought, well thought, thought that the, the decision was deferred until it was confirmed that, that <laughs> India were not going to finish in the, bo in the bottom uh, bottom two of this tournament. I mean, I don't know. Well, and might well change again if it, once England do. Um, I mean, Miller, it would be embarrassing for England to miss the 2025 Champions Trophy um, in Pakistan. Would it be a blessing to miss out on another commitment in the calendar, or will the ECB just fill that space in February uh, 2025 with a tour of the West Indies, who oh, also mean, won't be there? Exactly, exactly <laughs> what they'll do. I mean, it, go, it goes without saying. They, 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 it'll be it'll be manna from heaven for the West Indies board. It's like, come on, uh, come and come and come have a sinecure over over in over in Barbados and St Lucia. Um, yeah, they, they will always find ways to fill fill the hole. But that that's that's the way this game goes. There's no 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 chance of any downtime. Um, but no, I mean, it, it, it's nuts, isn't it? I mean, it, even if they did know, 
there's no way on earth that anyone at any level of the ECB would have been thinking, you know what, we better just be careful in case we don't get into the top eight of the World Cup. I mean, Jesus. I mean, it, it really is not <clears throat> not a consideration that even in England's darkest days, you know, you know, the, the, you know, we've had some pretty awful World Cups, and I will be listing them uh, in in periodic <laughs> table style at some stage. Um, but I cannot, I cannot envisage a single World Cup where England would have finished outside the top eight. I mean, you know, even in in 1996, they got to the semi-finals, the quarterfinals, sorry, because it was basically designed to be the top eight teams mm. would get through to the quarterfinals, and lo and behold, they made it, even though they 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 stunk the tournament out. Um, 2015, 2015, they didn't make the quarters. I suppose they probably finished joint ninth or something like that. Officially. Yeah, joint ninth, but yeah, possibly. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 you know, in a different group, where they would have, would have been a different balance. I don't know. It's a, it, it's, it beggars belief that they can, you know, in an in an all plays all ten team tournament, that they can not get into the top eight. That they will finish potentially below one of Netherlands or Bangladesh or both. Um, on on the just summing up the state of play, uh, Matt, with with the tournament, we've we've had a couple of good finishes, thirty uh, <laughs> something games in, um, but uh, I mean th- England being so bad as to fall out of contention, uh, but you know, but by, by, by such a margin that they're now struggling to actually get in the top eight, um, has kind of meant the top four is beginning to look nailed on, or, or is it uh, Afghanistan going to spice up the the final week or two? I think it probably is nailed on. I, I, I think you mentioned those two fantastic games, actually. The, the Pakistan, South Africa and Australia and New Zealand were both, um, you know, there's not been that many games at, at this tournament where I've been doing something else and been desperate to switch on um, because I've seen the score. But both of those games were ones that I actively sought out um, and made a point of watching. Um, but both of those had the, the sort of combined effect of, um, you know, reducing a lot of the jeopardy in the group stage because of the fact that they sort of reinforce that top four and who they are, um, who they're likely to be. I think, um, yeah, I, I feel as though Afghanistan have clearly, um, you know, confirmed that they're a, a much better team than the one that uh, we saw four years ago. Um, they've been very well coached by Jonathan Trott, I think it's fair to say, but also some of those players in there, despite all of the, you know, we talk about England not having uh, a domestic 50 over competition and not having played enough ODIs. Well, Afghanistan have a, a, a hardly a particularly stable domestic system. They do have a 50 over competition, but it's pretty short. And um, I can't imagine there's a huge amount of um, sort of following for it or money involved in it, shall we say. Um, and they played even fewer ODIs in the last cycle than England. So some of their players have, have been seriously impressive, particularly, you know, I suppose, Gurbaz and Ibrahim have been very good. But then also the, the middle order have stepped up in a way we didn't expect. Um, Ramat Shah and Hazmatullah Shahidi and Amazai last night, they've been yeah fantastic. But I feel as though the only real route I can see to them pipping Australia is probably by England. Uh, doing them a massive favour this weekend in Ahmedabad, which currently feels quite unlikely. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I feel as I fear that um, we're going to have two weeks of uh, confirming what we already thought we knew, um, and the the only question will be which team gets to uh, get gets a drubbing at the one KD from India. <laughs> you, you've already you've auto completed this already. Um... <laughs> Uh, Miller, I mean, can can England do one last favour for the tournament by beating Australia, or is it on New Zealand perhaps stumbling through those last three games, uh, ending on eight points, having 
I think one four from four uh, to start with, um, and and someone like Afghanistan sneaking in. Uh, they play Australia as well in the final uh, the final run of games. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 most realistic route to jeopardy would be England beating Australia and and Afghanistan sneaking through. But in their current mood, and given everything we know <laughs> about what happened this summer with with the moral ashes and baseball and all the rest of it, I cannot see in a light. I cannot, for the life of me, see how England turn Australia over now. I think the 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 boot is completely on the other foot. I mean, if you imagine the the absolute certainty, the the confidence that England were able to march out throughout the Ashes, even at two 0 down, thinking we've got you, we know, we know, we know, we're in your heads. I mean, that's completely flipped on its head. You, you know, you, you, you imagine the, the 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 banter and 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 the and the noise in in Ben Stokes's ear. Even Ben Stokes, the mentality giant that he is, you know, the amount of chirp he will get for that shot against Shami and also the just the, the knowledge that you know here comes the Messiah bloody blah come on Messiah dig yourself out of this it just feels as though Australia will have an upper hand that it would take an extraordinary amount of self-belief that I mean clearly the likes of Butler Stokes Root have got a massive amount of self-belief when it comes to being great players but right at this moment in the in the mood that 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 team is currently in and everything we've seen about the way that um, Australia have just grown into the into the tournament in a way that I did not see happening, to be perfectly honest. I did not see David Warner having a good tournament, for instance, which has really set up their still not entirely dynamic early middle order, but let the later middle order cut loose. I mean, they you know they they have they've got it they've got it nailed on thanks to thanks to their their, their opening partnership working, and I you know it feels like you know that it. it it's boot, it's rewound to 2015 essentially. You know, we got given an absolute shooing by New Zealand, a bit like back in the cake tin. We got an absolute shooing by by Australia in that tournament. Um, I can't see how England get out of this nosedive now. Pat Cummins didn't look uh, didn't look too flustered when asked about England's fortunes, did he? <coughs> At uh, press conference the other day. Right, I, I think that's enough blood and guts for one episode. England take on Australia in Ahmedabad on Saturday and on current form are in line for another horror hammering. We'll be back to pick the bones out in a couple of weeks. Until then, uh, my thanks to Miller and Matt and to you all for tuning in. This has been the Switch It podcast on ESPNCrickInfo.com.